turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're just going to finish up, hopefully. One thing, uh, somebody asked me, what, what happened to Paul? I mean, he had joy in spite of all these troubles that he faced. He had joy in spite of his, the people that came against him, his detractors and his death. Uh, in spite of the threat of death, he, he maintained his joy through that. And he, as we talked about last week, he maintained his joy through dealing with the flesh that we live in every day, this world. And uh, somebody asked, well, what happened to him? And uh, most likely, what I realize is that he's, he was released shortly after the burning of Rome, you remember, in, in AD 64. And uh, that whole situation, Nero was kind of looking for a way out of some things. And so he blamed the Christians as he set fire to Rome. And so Paul was imprisoned again, and uh, he was beheaded sometime between uh, A.D. 65 and 67. Um, and during that time, before his, during that time of, of freedom, before his final imprisonment and his execution, he helped a lot of the, the different churches. And um, so he was released when he says, I will... In, in the previous verses as we looked at, uh, he was released from prison. And whether the Lord gave him that divine revelation or whatever, it, it came to be true. And he was released and uh, was able to still serve the Lord to some capacity before his execution. Uh, this morning, I just want to look at, at verses 27 to 30. And uh, let's see what uh, Paul has for us this morning. So read along with me as I read this to us. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you should stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Paul had a special love. He really had a special place in his heart, a special appreciation or respect for this church at, at Philippi. And it was, it was probably one of the most mature churches described to us in the New Testament as far as the way they handled themselves, the way they conducted themselves before the Lord. And nevertheless, it even had a few problems. And so Paul um, sometimes uh, had to address those. And some of those problems were potentially very serious. Um, like every church in every age, uh, they need to be on guard against certain things. Um, if you look over at just chapter 3 of Philippians, look at verse 2. He says, beware of dogs. He's not talking of pit bulls here either. Um, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And so he's really talking, classifying their false uh, teachers. And it's one thing that even back then, they had to be on guard against people who would somehow pervert the gospel of Christ. Um, and even down in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, um, he really calls out those who were within their congregation there in verses 17 and 18. He says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have uh, us for a pattern. And then he says, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so the apostle knew that within the Philippian church, there was issues, there was problems, as there is with any church. Um, and he really understood it wouldn't take long for a faithful church, a church that held to the word of God and preached the true gospel of Christ, if they compromised in certain areas, would soon be on the slippery slope of being classified as a false uh, gospel teaching church. 
And so he really kind of turns the emphasis here um, in his letter. And he calls the Philippians to really maintain their spiritual commitment in Christ. Um, he, he wants them to continue to behave in such a way that it's, it's consistent with the power of the gospel of Christ. Um, he tells them to look carefully at their own hearts um, to determine if they have spiritual, you might say, integrity. And that uh, uh, appeal applies also, I think, to every follower of Jesus Christ um, in every time and place. We're never in our life at a point where we can just say, okay, now we can just stop growing because we're just like Christ in every form of practice in my life and, and I'm just perfect. Well, in God's eyes we're perfect, but not in our own fleshly dealings every day. We live in an imperfect world, a world stained by sin, and we have to deal with it all around us. And so, because he believed it was necessary for their well-being, Paul was confident that the Lord would allow him to return to them and for their progress of the faith. And that's what he, we shared about last week in verses 25 and 26. But regardless of what happened, he said, basically, I, I want you to make, make sure, whether I make it or not, I, wanna, I want you to make sure that you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I just want to kind of park ourselves there for a little bit and discuss that. What does that look like? What does that mean? You notice there in verse 27, he starts off, in, in my translation, it says, only let your conduct be known. And it, it's really placed there in the original language to make an emphasis on something that he's going to say. And above all, Paul wanted their lives to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a truth that the apostle kind of reiterates over and over and over again. Look over at chapter 2 and uh, verses 15 and 16. He admonishes them in this way over and over. Uh, verses 15 and 16. He says there, Prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run or toil in vain. And I think that, that part of what he's saying there is, is something that's reiterated throughout his writings to the church. Now that word conduct there, when he says back there, he says let, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's, it's the main verb. Everything builds around that in verses 27 to 30. And it's a single Greek sentence there. All those verses, 27 to 30, it's a single Greek sentence, and the main verb is conduct yourself. And it comes from a, a root word which really uh, means city, polis, and it means city. You know, that's where we get, uh, uh, you know, uh, certain cities end with that. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's kind of an uh, interesting thing that it, it refers to city. It refers to city-states that they had back in their culture, and you were part of a city, that's where your primary allegiance was. If you were a citizen of Redwood City, then your primary allegiance would be to Redwood City. It wouldn't be to Menlo Park or Atherton or San Mateo. It would be to Redwood City. And that's how they viewed it back then, even more so. And the primary allegiance was to that city in which you claimed residence. Same, same thing today. Um, you know, I don't know what's going on so much in the city council in San Mateo, but when something pops up in the city council in Redwood City, because I live in Redwood City, then that catches my attention. And the same thing back then, and it, it carries the basic idea of being a citizen. But by implication, it's really talking about being a good citizen. Uh, one whose conduct brings honor to the political body to whom they belong. So if you're a citizen of Redwood City, and you're out, you know, constantly whining and complaining about Redwood City, as sometimes we need to do, but, you know, if we just think it's the worst place to live, you know, the answer is then move. You know, go, go live somewhere else. Don't just complain. That's not being a good citizen. And so it really means to, to, to be part of uh, a group of people that are committed to something. In this case, he was really referring to uh, the body of Christ, obviously. 
Now, Philippi had a distinct kind of a uh, distinction among themselves. They were a Roman colony, and they were they were highly privileged status because it gave the inhabitants many of the rights enjoyed by citizens of Rome themselves. So it was kind of like Rome was established, and then they, they established these other little towns that were almost like little Romes, and they had all the privileges if, as if you lived in Rome. And so they really took pride in that association, and they gave an unqualified allegiance to the city of Rome and to the emperor, and they adopted the Roman dress, and they did everything. Roman names, spoke Latin, they did the whole thing. Um, and so it was a very community-oriented understanding that they had back then. And the individual was always subordinate to the state. And so it's, it's when you had gifts and you had talents and stuff, you were expected to use those gifts and those talents within your city to better that, that, that place in which you lived. Um, and it wasn't so much you know, that you were made to do it. You just wanted to do it. You wanted to contribute. Um, and a responsible citizen would never do anything that would bring harm or, or, or uh, you know, shame to the place in which they lived. And that's kind of the idea behind that. And he always tried to be an honorable citizen. And uh, they had the opportunity, if they, you weren't too honorable, they would actually remove you from the list. <laughs> so you didn't have the rights that everybody else enjoyed if you lived in a city and you weren't an honorable citizen. They would actually make you a non-citizen. And all of a sudden, a lot of those rights that you once experienced were stripped away. And so Paul had that sense of dedication when he says in verse 27, Oh, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think the, the citizens of Philippi were so devoted to the honor of their human kingdom. What he's saying is how much more should you be devoted to the heavenly kingdom? To the God of God, the King of Kings. And so Paul really charged them that their conduct is, is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And they live as faithful citizens of heaven. And he, he shares that throughout his, his epistles. Um, and you stop and you say, well, how does heavenly conduct, how do you describe that? What is that? Well, it can be characterized by being blameless and innocent, by being children of God above reproach. In the midst of a crooked and, crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And so to live a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to really live a life that's consistent with God's revealed world. Word. That's where we want to go. If, you, if you're a new believer and you're saying, well, I don't know how to live, well, then read the Word. The Word has all the principles, has all the practices, has everything in there. Um, you know, it's not an option for us to pick and choose. I mean, we apply the whole Word of God across the board to our lives. And so it's important for us to understand that this is our, our rule book, you might say. This is our, our guide in the Christian walk forget who it was, I don't know if it was Greg Laurie or whatever, but he said, you know, Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That's, that's what the little acrostic is. And, you know, that's, what we, that's why we should be in it constantly, whether it's about raising our families, about conducting relationships, um, about financial dealings, about business dealings, whatever it is, the Word of God speaks to that. And we want to live in a way that would be honoring before God in all those ways. If you, I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. You don't necessarily have to turn to them, because I'm going to go through them kind of quickly. But in Ephesians 4, chapter 1, Paul says once again, "In a manner worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called." Um, in Colossians 1:10, he says, "Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God." In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, "Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you." into his own kingdom and glory. And so over and over again, he says that, you know what, our lives should be picked, a life that is honoring to Christ. Uh, the church's greatest testimony before the world is really spiritual integrity in the individuals that make up the church. 
That's all they see. So, you know, if you're if you're out and about and you're living like the world, and there's no likeliness at all to Christ, and then you say, "Oh yeah, I go to church." Well, what are you doing? You're really bringing shame <laughs> on the name of Christ and even the church in which you may belong to, because you're living a life that's inconsistent with what Scripture says. Um, and so, you know, you wonder sometimes when you share the gospel with somebody, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, in a way, they're right. I always say, you know what, you're right. <laughs> but it's the best thing we got. It's sinners saved by grace. And uh, when the unsaved world look at a church and they don't see holiness, they don't see purity, they don't see virtue, um, they see something that looks just like the world, then I think that somehow you got you got problems. Um, when pastors or leadership commit gross sins and 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 they're overlooked, just like well, that's okay. When church members steal and cheat and lie and gossip and quarrel, when the, the congregation seems to care little about this sin and this hypocrisy in their midst, you wonder why the world looks at the church and goes, what is that? That's not the real deal. What's going on with that? Because the name of Christ is, is, is dishonored. Now, when he says there, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ, what is the gospel of Christ? You know, I mean, that's such a vague term today. Um, and we, we live in a, a, such a, an age today that everything is relative to whatever you want to believe. Um, I was able to read a transcript from somebody on a talk interview show, and this person was asking them pretty directly about the gospel of Christ. I mean, almost saying, well, isn't Jesus the only way kind of thing. And this pastor of a very prominent church pretty much, in my estimation, denied everything he, he stands for. Just outright denied it. Um, which is sad. And he, you know, he retracted what he said and wrote a letter of apology and everything. But you know what? To me, it's too late. I mean, what kind of Christian would you be if somebody comes up and says, well, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And you say, well, no, there's lots of different ways. You can serve you know, whoever you want and still go to heaven. God loves everybody. And then the next day you're going, well, no, that's not what I meant to say. Something wrong there. They don't understand what the gospel of Christ is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4, it tells us. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Romans 1.16 says it's the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. The point here is, is that those who belong to Christ through saving faith in His gospel should demonstrate the power of the gospel by changed lives. When you see someone come to Christ and nothing's changed, you know what? Nothing's literally changed. You cannot be the same person when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in that transforming salvation experience. You're just not. It doesn't mean that you have to become some preacher or whatever, but there should be some change in your life. And we're so quick, so quick to allow people to claim the name of Christ. And then we... You know, they, they're professing Christ. They're saying, you know, that they're a Christian. And then we look at their life and nothing adds up. But we go, well, you know, grace of God and all that. I'm sure they're growing. Um, you know, we need to stop and we need to say, what, what happens at salvation? That, that truly tells us that when we come to Christ, we are transformed. The old is done away, right? The new has become. I mean, you know, it's not that we live a sinless life as believers. We don't. We all struggle with sin every day. But we should have some victory mixed in there too. 
we should have the ability to look at our life and say, wow, this is a different life I'm living now than it was before I came to Christ. And we're so quick to kind of rubber stamp people into the kingdom of heaven. You know, I was at a certain point in my ministry. I thought, wow, you know, if I can get a kid to pray a prayer and, and to commit their life to Christ, that's great. Well, you know, you get to do that so many times. And then you go back to your church after you have the mountaintop experience at camp and all that. And you go back and the kids that once were crying and, and just, you know, confessing sins before the Lord and praying and, and asking Christ into their life. Three weeks later, they're back into the same nest they were before. And they don't have anything to do with church or God or anything else. There's a problem there. Something didn't connect. Somehow there was some manipulation that went on to cause them to do something that maybe God didn't even wasn't in the plan of them doing. Because I don't think you can come to Christ and not have some form of, of a change in your life. And so it's the message here that, that Paul is saying, you know what, only let your conduct be worthy of the Gospel of Christ. Uh, and the, the Philippians were threatened by, he goes on, they're savage wolves even from their own congregation. False teachers, the Bible says, will arise and they'll speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And he understood that. Paul did. And despite the, the general spiritual maturity of the congregation in Philippi, he was still warning them. And some of its members would prove their lack of saving faith by deserting Christ for another gospel. Others who had been saved by the power of the Holy Spirit would fall into a legalistic mindset and they trusted in their own fleshly achievements for their sanctification in Galatians. And so, whether or not Paul visited his beloved church at Philippi, you notice that their accountability was not to him, but it was to who? Christ. That's where our accountability always lies. And so his appeal, therefore, was that whether he was to come or remain absent, they were to trust in the Lord and live worthy of Him. See, and we can all come to church and put on a pretty face and you know act real spiritual and you know sing songs and read scripture and you know shake hands and, and all sorts of things. But you know what? What does God really see? What's really going on in our life? Because He sees that. You're not fooling God. Um, you know, and that's the that's the the key is that we answer to Him and Him alone. And so He shares in this text here briefly. He shares four characteristics. What does it look like if you're going to be found worthy in your conduct of the gospel of Christ? And He said, you know what? Whether I come to you or remain absent, that's not important. I may hear of your affairs. And then he says this, that you stand fast, that you stand fast, stand firm. Um, it really refers to somebody holding their ground in spite of opposition. I love to watch the military channel now and then. And they have you know, certain things and they have battles and and it explains what went on kind of behind the scenes in some of these things. And it's incredible to think that these soldiers went out there and in the face of fierce opposition, they held their ground even though they were being almost slaughtered around them. I mean, and that's the idea here. It's somebody who stands firm in spite of opposition. The word really was used of the soldier who defended his position at all costs, even to the point of his own demise. And I think here, Paul is using it in such a way that he's, he's, he's using it to hold fast to a belief, to a conviction, to a principle, without compromise, regardless of personal cost. Being so firmly fixed in matters of biblical truth and holy living that, you know what, nothing else matters. Now, standing firm is both positive and negative. It is to stand for God and against who? Satan. 
Right? That's what we're called to do. We're to stand for truth, but we're to stand against falsehood. We're to stand for righteousness, but we're to stand against sin. And so Paul here is really using this as a, as a command. A little later on, over in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my beloved. And so in Romans, in, in chapter 14, or chapter 14, verse 4, he uses the word to describe the Lord's enabling his people to stand for him. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, 13, and other places, it says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In Galatians 5, 1, he says, keep standing firm in the freedom of grace and don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery. They were getting involved in all sorts of legalistic rules and regulations. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, put on the full armor of God, Paul says, to stand against the schemes of the devil, to be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. See, only the armor of God can enable believers to stand. I mean, we can't go out there in our own flesh and say, I'm going to stand against the devil. I'm going to have victory today because of who I am. You know, I'm just going to think positive thoughts and it's all going to work out. It doesn't work that way. And the reason it doesn't work that way is because we're, we're not in a, a struggle against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6.12 says, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. See, Paul wasn't really afraid to endure the ridicule and the hardship and the suffering and even death. His convictions were so firm and so unwavering that he said, you know what, whatever comes, I'm not going to compromise on these things. He would not compromise the divine truth that God entrusted to him. I mean, would it be that churches would rise up that said, you know what, we're not going to compromise the Word of God. We're not going to just teach the pleasant parts. In that same interview, the individual said, well, do you use the word sinners or sin in your church? Oh, no, I never would call anybody a sinner. I would never use the word sin. That's a negative thought. And I thought, boy, oh boy, oh boy. What are you thinking? I think that Paul really had a fear here. And I think it, it really reflected his concern for them, but it, it really came out of a fear that maybe even he had. Um, I think his one fear was that he would somehow be disqualified from ministry by dishonoring the name of Christ. And I think that, in a way, it didn't matter how sound his doctrine remained, there was still that danger out there of disqualification, which stemmed, in a large part, from misuse of his own body. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, he declared his determination. He says, I need to discipline my body and make it my slave. And what he was saying was, you know what? The misuse of the body he had in mind there was sexual immorality. And I think in the most sobering terms possible, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Turn over there, verses 15 to 20. Paul once again brings this up. Because you can have all the doctrine you want right, but if somehow you dishonor, your conduct falls to the state of, of being dishonoring the Lord by some form of, of sexual immorality, it's very serious. 1 Corinthians 6 Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. 
But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Therefore, flee immorality. And then he makes this distinction. Look at what he says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In your body. And that's why throughout the New Testament, qualifications for even church leadership are, are, are pretty high. There shouldn't even be a hint of immorality. And he, he goes over that, that, Timothy and Titus. And that's why it's, it's important to understand that, you know, not only leaders, but any of us should be above reproach in our, in our conduct before the world for Christ. So we need to take that stand. We need to be willing to, to no matter what the cost, be willing to take that stand firmly. And then he says, in one spirit, with one mind, in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Along with standing firm in the faith, he says there also has to be unity. You can't have disunity and everybody standing firm because then everybody's standing in opposition to everybody else. And you have a big war. There, there's got to be some mutual sharing of convictions. There's got to be some mutual sharing of responsibilities. And he says, in one spirit, in one mind. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, see, many interpreters really have argued here that this phrase should read, in one spirit, capital S. I don't know what your translation says. But there's a problem there. I, I don't believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. However, he does speak of the Holy Spirit in other places. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, um, Paul's obviously speaking about the Holy Spirit when he says spirit. He says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Well, when does that happen? It happens at salvation of one spirit. And so the same is true when he notes that through Christ... We both have access to the Father in Ephesians. And he says there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. One. He's obviously talking about the Holy Spirit in those texts. But I think here, this, this word that he's using here, mind is, I think he's using the, the, the word spirit. He's referring to the human spirit. And the word mind is, is often translated soul. And so Paul here is, is really speaking of personal attitudes and personal perspectives, you might say. So that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Now, from, from the very beginning of the church, the church was in of one mind. That was kind of clear. In, in Acts chapter 2, you can go there. It's it. After a few days, all those uh, who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with everybody as anyone had need, day by day. Continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And so in Philippians there, you see pretty clearly that, uh, or in Acts, that when the church began, it was of one spirit and of one mind. They had a participation. Even in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Hey, I thank you for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. But I think here he's really encouraging them to live in a harmonious state one with another. I mean, we all are obviously united in the spirit 
as Christians. I don't think that's what he's referring to. I think he's saying, hey, you know what? You just need to agree with each other. You need to find that commonality amongst yourselves. Um, in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, Just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And then he says this, Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul exhorts the Corinthian church. He says, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And so, you know, church strife, strife within a church, doesn't always include such flagrant sins as, as adultery and stealing and lying and and you know, defamation of character, whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of times it has to do with a lot of uh, lesser sins, you might say. You know, um, bitterness, unjust criticism, disharmony, dissatisfaction, distrust, um, holding grudges over minor issues. See, the enemy of the church really desires and, and he succeeds when God's people turn their, their freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And that's, that's what the enemy wants to do. We forget that, that through love we're, to, we're called to serve one another. And instead, Galatians 5 says they begin to bite and devour one another. Consumed by one another. And that's why he says, walk by the Spirit and don't carry out the desire of the flesh. I think it was Chuck Swindoll who described the church as a, as a herd of porcupines. You know, you want to get close to each other, but as soon as you do, you start poking each other. And it's kind of got this, this weird effect on us. But Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, that's not as easy as it you know, as, as sometimes we think it is to forgive somebody for something because the damage is done, the scar is there, but God can heal that. I, I, I totally believe that. And when we went through the, the book of Philemon, we talked about forgiveness, and forgiveness is not, well, you know what, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. That's not forgiveness. That's not the kind of forgiveness that God is talking about. He is talking about a, a forgiveness that involves forgetfulness. And uh, I think that's just so, so clear. And so he says there that we should be of the same mind, that we should strive to, to do that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go over this, but I just want to read this in verse uh, 2 to 4. If you want to know how to do this, this is basically... He says, uh, make my joy full, be of one, be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. See, that's, that's key to any relationship, not just within the church. Third thing he says there is that we should strive together. He says, okay, you, you, you stand firm, you're of one mind, and then he says to make sure that you're, you're striving. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. Um, don't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation to you. Uh, third characteristic here really involves the idea of striving together. It's a compound word in, in the Greek, and it, it really comes with an athletic uh, flavor to it. It means to compete in a contest, especially in a sport such as like wrestling. That's really what it was used for. And actually, the, the term from which we get the English words athletic and athlete uh, are from this Greek, Greek word. They're derived from that. 
And, and so Paul uses that over and over again in 2 Timothy uh, 2.5. He says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And so the idea is, is that we come together. I mean, there has to be some semblance of striving together. Everybody just can't be doing their own thing. He emphasized the attitude of not taking advantage of another person uh, for your own benefit, but even sacrificing your own welfare to help out someone else. You know, one thing that you, if you watch sports at all, some sports teams have, they'll have one person on their team that's just far, I mean, probably like the best of the whole team. And everything revolves around them. And a lot of times those teams do pretty good. But you know what? You can take a team that's made up of maybe guys that have half the talent as that one star. And if they're willing to work hard together and really create a team mentality, they can beat that other team that has that shining star. Because, you know, there's something about team effort. Uh, the less talented team can often win against that which is, is more talented because the weaker team really works efficiently together. They have to. Whereas the other team just relies on, you know, whoever their star is. And, you know, when we come together as a church, it really means and, and has the idea of playing together as a team. Uh, to advance the truth of God. I think that the genuine unity of any sort must have some form of purpose. Uh, you don't just have unity for unity's sake. That's kind of crazy. But the church's really true unity is grounded in the faith of the gospel, as Paul speaks here which refers to the Christian faith. That's why when you go on vacation, you visit another church, you know, you, you have something in common with them. You can walk into that church and, and worship and feel right at home because there's that bond in the unity of Christ. Paul calls it in another place the gospel of Christ. He calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Uh, he refers to it in Jude 3, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Uh, that's what we should be striving together to advance, that faith of the gospel. You know, unfortunately, you say, well, that seems pretty easy. And so, unfortunately, it's not. Um, you know, so many false teachers have found their way into the church today that it's hard sometimes to discern which is which. Because everybody has a little element of truth. A false teacher doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm a false teacher and I'm going to deny Christ and I'm going to do this and that and everything else. No, they, they, they come out and they come out in a very slick way, a very sly way. And they really distort the scriptures for their own destruction, Second Peter 3.16 says. But I think today is the day in the church, the time in which we live, we really need discernment. We need to practice discernment. And the Bible says that, you know, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. See, everything on the outside looks great. Um, sheep's clothing is an ungodly idea or principle or practice that's kind of folded in with Christian terminology. And if you don't look closely, you're just going to say, oh, okay, that guy's a good guy. Now, I think sometimes we can be too critical, too, so we have to ask the Spirit to guard our hearts. Timothy... Paul told Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you or to them, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. See, the positive goal of striving together is proclaiming the faith of the gospel. Um, Acts 2.38 says, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not long ago after he 
testified before his Jewish leaders in that city, says, let it be known all of you and to all the people of Israel, this is Peter, that by the name of Jesus Christ of the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised up from the dead, he is the stone which you rejected. The builders, the builders rejected, but became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. You know, that's the kind of answer we need to give when someone says, you know, are there many ways to get to heaven? You have to be willing to say, you know what, the Bible says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what, in a lot of people's eyes that seems hard, but I mean, Christ said himself, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I remember one time I was watching Bill O'Reilly, and whether you like him or not, whatever, but he, was, he had some religious person on there. And he was saying, hey, well, this is the no spin zone, you know, and all this, that's his theme, you know, straight talk here. And I thought, you know what, that's true, except when it comes to religion with you. Because whenever you hear him talk about religion, he's always willing to embrace whoever and, you know, all this stuff. And I wrote him an email one time, and I said, you know what, it seems like your no-spin zone <laughs> stops at the foot of the cross. I said, I think Jesus has a real no-spin zone, because he, and I quoted this verse, I am the way, the truth, obviously it never got on the air or anything, but I just thought, you know what, that's so true of people. That's a hard thing to hear. And you know what? There's, there's, there's a lot of attempt going on today in growing number of churches who are intentionally playing down the biblical elements of salvation and the demands of true discipleship so that they can increase their numbers and embrace more people. And I think when they do that, the gospel becomes almost something trivial. It becomes reduced to a level that it doesn't have any effect on any way. It's almost impotent. And I think in an attempt to make the gospel appealing and to make the gospel acceptable, many churches and many ministers, they do it in such a way that, that effectively, maybe not intentionally, they, they really uh, dishonor the very word of God they, they claim to proclaim. To me, it's encouraging to see that more biblical preaching is coming back. Um, I mean, there's still churches you go in in 10 minutes, that's the sermon and all that. I understand that. But, you know, I think people are hungry for truth. I really do. And I think that, you know, when we seek to not, you know, give our own opinion on things, but to go to God's Word and see what God's Word has to say, I think for the most part, God honors that. God blesses that. And he is blessed by that. And I think the last thing here in, in Paul's four characteristics here, the last one is suffering. Not very positive. But suffering, he says there in verse 29, that we should suffer, that we will be suffering for his sake. Um, because it, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. See, and the idea is that, you know, when Jesus was here on earth physically, they persecuted him. They attacked him. Well, now he's not here. And so that's why he was saying, hey, you think I got a bad? Wait till they get a hold of you guys. And we endure persecution. We endure suffering because... Hopefully, we're representing the cause of Christ, the name of Christ. It says here that it has been granted. And that's from the same root noun as grace. And it literally means to give, to render, to grant graciously. And it's, it's interesting that in God's sovereign grace, God not only gave believers the marvelous gift of faith to believe in Him, but He also gave them the privilege to suffer for his sake. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if I think of it as a privilege often. 
when you suffer for the name of Christ. Sometimes you think it is a, you know, why is this happening to me or whatever. The first thing believers have been granted for Christ's sake is saving faith to believe in Him. And then it says that we've been granted suffering. It's part of our, our, our Christian walk. It's part of what, what Christ gave us to live for each and every day. And he says, that's the same conflict I have. Same one you have in me, you're going to have. Might be a little different. We may not be in a prison, but we're called to stand up for his name's sake. And I just want to ask you this morning, are we doing that? Are we doing it as a church? Are we doing it as individuals? Is our conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ? I hope and pray that it is, but we all have to answer that that question for ourselves. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you uh, that we can meet in this place even though it's hot. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would uh, take your word and minister it to our hearts. Father, I ask that above all else that we would stand for the gospel of Christ, that our conduct would be worthy and honorable. Lord, help us not to compromise when it seems that's maybe the, the politically correct thing to do. Lord, sometimes it's hard to speak out and, and even be critical sometimes of certain teachings and individuals. But Lord, your call, you, you call us to guard the truth. And Father, I pray that our words would always be seasoned with grace. And Lord, that you would really convict the hearts of those who are falsely teaching error. Lord, that you would cause them to repent and come to you afresh. And Lord, that you would give us real discernment, whether we're listening to the radio or watching TV. Lord, there's so much garbage out there today. I pray that we would guard what we allow into our ears and our mind and our eyes. And Father, we thank you for each one that's come out this morning. We pray that you just bless your word to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name.